I'm Brian Santo, EE Times Editor-in-Chief. You're listening to EE Times On Air. And this is your weekly briefing for the week ending October 16th. In this episode, we interview Yuri Adoni, who's been the CEO of MSN Israel, a partner in one of the most prominent venture capital funds in Israel, and is the author of the new book, The Unstoppable Startup, Mastering Israel's Secret Rules of Chutzpah. We talk about why startups succeed or fail, why some countries are better at supporting startups than others, and, of course, what chutzpah actually means. Industry has always been about specializing. Someone invents a motor, and the next thing you know, you have different companies specializing in different kinds of motors, some for cars, some for household appliances, some for passenger jets, still others for steppers and robotics, and so on. It was probably no different after the invention of beer thousands of years ago, and it was certainly no different after the invention of the integrated circuit only a few decades ago. What does seem different about industry in recent decades is the way that business functions are also being broken down into specialties. There are companies that handle just payroll, others that handle just human resources, many that provide IT support. One of the more interesting specialties that has developed is venture capital. Once upon a time, an inventor might have gone to a banker to borrow money, or his cousin, or perhaps he might have incorporated and tried to raise money in the stock market. But now there's an entire industry of financiers dedicated to supporting high-tech startups and shepherding them to some next level, perhaps to independence through an initial public offering, an IPO, or perhaps a sale to a larger corporation. The business of startups and venture capital can be arcane, and that's why we were pleased to hear about a new book that provides some insight into the process. It's called The Unstoppable Startup, Mastering Israel's Secret Rules of Chutzpah. That's a title that promises a bit of enlightenment. The author of the book is Yuri Adoni. Adoni led a combat unit in the Israeli Defense Forces, the IDF, and you'll hear why that's significant later in our discussion. He was the CEO of MSN Israel from 2001 to 2006, and after that he joined Jerusalem Venture Partners, which is recognized globally for its successful track record, working mostly in a country, Israel, that has a notable track record for startup success. As of last year, Adoni's been managing director at Manatech, which describes itself as a platform for urban revitalization and community building. The operation is currently working in Miami. I was also attracted by the subtitle of The Unstoppable Startup, Mastering Israel's Secret Rules of Chutzpah, because A, who doesn't want to learn secret rules, and B, chutzpah is an interesting concept unto itself. It's a quality Adoni says is integral to the success of Israeli startups, but we'll get to that in a moment too. First, I wanted to get Adoni's opinion of what makes a startup successful. I asked him for an example of a startup that he'd been involved with that succeeded, and also an example of one that failed. I think that, um, you know, as a venture capitalist, definitely, I think every venture capitalist has their own uh, kind of successes and uh, failures. And that's part of the business. And uh, 
I think you can probably learn more from the failures than the successes, but from the successes, you can get some uh, uh, insights as well. Um, so um, I, I would say one, one example is kind of recent one, so it's uh, kind of uh, relevant in a way. Uh, it's a company that uh, uh, we invested in uh, called Aspectiva. It's a company that what they did is they developed this technology that enables to um, understand what the text is saying. It's an NLP, like natural language processing technology, but with, a, with an artificial intelligence, the machine learning. So all the buzzwords were, were there, but actually as technologies, not just as buzzwords. And, uh, and it was a very you know, powerful technology, which the team and, and us, we, you know, we weren't sure what exactly we should do with that. And there were a few options. Eventually, we decided to focus on the um, reviews uh, uh, market, so to speak, or segment, uh, because what you have today in reviews is uh, whether it's reviews of products or hotels or any any other review uh, games, um, you have thousands, if not tens of thousands of reviews, and you can't really follow what's relevant for you. So you get the star and you get three and a half, four stars, five, very, very primitive, I would say. Uh, but there's a lot of interesting data that is relevant for you as a, as a user to get out of these reviews. So um, we said, okay, let's, let's make a test. And we, they took like millions and millions of reviews uh, out of the internet, which are, which are free. And, uh, and they start analyzing them. And, and uh, two things that are really interesting came up. One is that because you use the people reviews, you can actually have um, some kind of targeted review per feature. For example, let's say you are looking for a vacuum cleaner to, uh, for your pet's hair. Uh, you, you don't know today, nobody knows, no Amazon, nobody knows which is the best vacuum cleaner for pet's hair because nobody tested it, I guess, or whatever. But if you hear, thousands of people said, this is a great product for my pet's hair. You got this insight that you wanted. So, uh, and, and that could be on any feature for any product and in a, in a click of a button. So if you want a trolley to run on the beach, you don't know what that is, but the crowd knows. And if you know how to kind of get all this data and all these reviews, you can actually search by, by feature and not necessarily just by the product. Uh, and so um, that was kind of a breakthrough in a way. And we started kind of analyzing hundreds of thousands of products. And, uh, and, and by the way, one of the industries that, were, that are still very kind of review dependent is, is the uh, hotel industry and travel in a whole, but hotels specifically. And then you would see people that you, I, I couldn't, <laughs> I didn't imagine it exists, but a lot of people write reviews about the pillows in hotels. And apparently it's an important topic because people sometimes choose their hotel by the, you know, whether it's a soft pillow or a hard pillow, or, they, or you can choose pillows or whatever, uh, but you cannot find that anywhere. So anyway, we, we've, we've done that, you know, or if you want, you know, a good hotel for an anniversary or whatever. So, um, you could actually get the reviews by topic. And it was really interesting to see the data that came out of there. And, uh, and they started working and they had some nice uh, proof of concepts, which with, I think the best thing of the proof of concept that they did was this, they did this A-B testing with their technology, without their technology, and the conversion rates with their technology was much higher. So it actually created real business 
to the e-commerce or, or the other sites. Uh, and then uh, probably a year ago, something like that, um, uh, there was some kind of a, there were a few um, large corp, American corporates that were interested. Uh, cannot name all of them, but I can say that eventually it was sold to Walmart. And because Walmart really appreciated the fact that you can actually choose the, the right product um, and get these insights uh, from the crowd, which you cannot get any other way. Um, so that was a, a nice success of a company that uh, that kind of, uh, uh, and by the way, it wasn't a smooth ride by no way. There was bumps on the way and there were challenges on the way and there were, uh, you know, the, like it, it was a roller coaster like any startup. So it's it sounds like a nice story, but there's, you know, funding wasn't easy in the beginning. And so it's it, it was challenging, even though it, it had a, at a nice end uh, to it, but uh, it obviously wasn't uh, a, a smooth ride. I don't think any startup is, by the way. Um, oh, so perseverance is a good quality. Oh, it's a must. It's a must. Uh, and we can talk about it later, but I think that it's not just perseverance. It's, it's the passion you have for your product because uh, this this passion will 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 make you survive this crazy roller coaster. So uh, definitely uh, perseverance, perseverance and passion is important. Um, a company that didn't make it was a company that, you know, again, on the paper, it was almost a safe bet because it was a company that uh, uh, what they did was uh, they, it was in an advertising space. And uh, what they did is they offered um, to websites to to get uh, publishers uh, or yeah, sorry to the publishers to get the advertisers to their website and uh, have a bid on their uh, it was a few years back on their on their banners or on their uh, uh, inventory and uh, by bidding it would increase the amount that they get for the banner or for the inventory of the site and so the startup built this really smart machine and it and it tested it on a few publishers. But then something interesting happened. It worked. The technology worked. So you, you could do the bid. You can actually increase. And they showed that they increased by, uh, I don't know, 10 to 20%, if I recall correctly, uh, the, the prices. That's good. Uh, yeah. So it's a, you know, you don't do anything for that. You just place the inventory in their, uh, in their machine. And so um, what they found out is that the technology worked, but... When, when it started to scale, so uh, you said, okay, the technology works, the model works, the proposition is straightforward, get, get our you know, line of code in your, in your uh, 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 advertising uh, kind of inventory and you'll get more money. You, you cannot get more straightforward than that. But they found out that the scaling was a big issue because there were all sorts of things. I would say two main things. One, a lot of the publishers, uh, they were very skeptical. So they will allocate only a small portion, portion of their inventory. So they will give them 10% on the inventory, 5%. And that's not, it's not large enough, you know, to scale and show the, that the, 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 the proposition actually works. The other thing that they found out is that the large uh, publishers are very, very um, um, protected uh, with their inventory. And so they needed to go on the mid-long tail. And then the mid-long tail, you have to really, the cost of acquisition of a new publisher in terms of the time spent and the explanation and the tech support, it just 
the, the economics didn't work. So even though you had a really good proposition with a technology that works fine and it proved itself, the company couldn't scale. And though eventually it, it didn't happen. Um, so I think that part of the lesson, so to speak, that even though, you know, and, and I also write about it in the book about the MPV and the minimum viable product that you want to go and check. And that's, that's probably the first steps, but it's by no means an insurance for success because the scaling is just as <laughs> challenging as, as creating the product. And so uh, I think that startups should definitely, um, at least I took it as a, a very a strong lesson uh, that even though something may, may work on a small scale, it doesn't necessarily guarantee that it will uh, work on a, on a large scale. So what that says to me, and, and I think this is uh, a behavior everybody's seen with venture capitalists, uh, uh, with, with VenCap companies, is that uh, you really need to uh, spread your bets. You, you, it's it's sure. good to have a, a fairly wide portfolio because you know some are going to win, some are going to lose, and you can't really predict necessarily which are going to be which, right? It's it's uh, yeah. So the sooner you so so the 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 younger the companies, the harder it is to know where it's going or whether it will succeed or not. And uh, and this is actually the strategy of any VC to build a portfolio of companies that. You know, some will win, some will not. And uh, as as the as the fund progresses, you should be able to kind of uh, mark the good companies, the B companies, and then the C companies, so to speak. So I think that leads us into the subject of your book, which is uh, part of which is um, startups, advice for startups, and how to talk to VCs. Is that is that part of it? Uh, yeah, it's definitely part of it. It's, uh, but it's not just how to talk to VCs. It's also part of your mindset. And when you have the right mindset, it goes through the meeting. So it's not just. Uh, also, not only it's it's part of that, but it's not. I, I I'm I'm not a big believer in. Uh, in playing or, you know, in, in putting a show, it doesn't work because you, you, most venture capitalists can see you through. So uh, it has to be kind of real and genuine. But I would say that uh, usually what venture capitalists, at least uh, me and my team were looking for, it was uh, basically three main things. But within these things, there are a few sub subtopics. So, the, so it's about the team, it's about the market, and it's about the product. Now, when you look about the team, obviously you want the, you know, some kind of a background that is relevant. Uh, you would like to, to be some kind of diversification. So maybe one comes from a, a management, some, somebody is coming uh, from technology, biz dev. So you want some kind of, you don't want them all to be technologists or all to be managers, et cetera. Uh, but this is kind of the obvious. I think what's, uh, what's some, sometimes the, the entrepreneur is not aware of that we are, we are highly considering passion when we look at them. How do they pitch their startup? You know, how, how truly passionate they are. And again, it's something that it's very hard to, uh, to put an act. You can't measure it, but you can feel it. It's like, you know, like American Idol. You don't know why this person is good and the other was not. You just feel it. So it's, it's kind of a, it's, in, so 
venture capitalism is not just all about Excel sheets and numbers. It's a lot about uh, having a musical ear to what's happening in the room. So I think fa- passion is definitely an important thing. The other thing that we look at is uh, the interaction between the team. So sometimes you see people of two or three, and then you see the CEO like shuts everybody up said, or, or, you know, he or she takes over and said, you know, I'll lead it. And he, he or she gives all the answers, et cetera. And if the CTO tried to say something, they would, ch- we don't like that. So one of the things you want to see is, is chemistry between them, how they, how they, you know, if you challenge them in the meeting, how do they react to that as a team? Not necessarily whether they got the answer right or not. Uh, so that's another thing that we look at. Um, another element that sometimes is, is underestimated is uh, what I call sense of urgency. Um, in some cases, you see entrepreneurs that are kind of relaxed or too relaxed. You know, they're, ah, yeah, we have time. You know, yeah, we, we, that'll take us another six months, that's another 12 months, we'll do it in two years. And you don't, you don't have that luxury. You need to run fast and accelerate and run even faster because whether you're aware of it or not, somebody is building a very, very similar product or proposition to what you're building and you need to beat them to the market. And uh, if there is already a market, a category, you need to make sure you come as fast as possible in order to challenge the category you want to challenge because somebody else will do it if not you. So you really need this sense of urgency. And again, it's not something that you ask about, you feel it, you see how, you know, you see their plan, you see their product roadmap, you see their budget, how how fast they want to go with the market. You see their go-to-market strategy, how fast you want to go to channels or, you know, uh, uh, expand to, in, in the Israeli case, expand to the U.S. or other markets that they want to challenge, uh, they want to go to. So I think the sense of urgency is also something that uh, um, uh, we look for. Um, then, you want them to have, you mentioned chutzpah and part of the book is about that. And so the chutzpah, and again, the chutzpah has, you know, a positive side and a negative side. So I would say we want to see the positive side of chutzpah that they have. And that is some kind of a mindset that they truly believe that they can challenge the status quo, that they can change the market that they're operating in, or they can create the new category that they want to open. Uh, but they really need to believe in it and have the chutzpah to say, I can actually build it. And I know, yeah, Google can do that or Microsoft can go, Apple, yeah, I can do it better than that. And again, it has to be grounded. It's not just a fantasy that, yeah, I can build something better than that. But in many cases you can, because you have come with a technology and with an algorithm or with some kind of a a very smart solution that uh, the big guys or the other uh, players in the market wouldn't come with. And uh, this is why there are so many exits, because eventually they buy these technologies or these companies that uh, uh, they, have, they didn't manage to, to develop themselves. So even though you have a lot of capital under, you know, uh, behind these large corporates, and uh, etc., the pace that they move is much slower. Uh, they are also have limitations because they are focused on their core business and what you're doing can be not necessarily core business, but side it, but they still want it. So there's a lot of reasons by, why a startup can can actually uh, uh, build a product or proposition and, and challenge existing solutions. And, and this chutzpah is a mindset that, again, that you want to see within the, the team and, and, and the founding team. Uh, the second thing I, I mentioned is the market. So it's kind of a, 
straightforward, but I think, uh, you know, whether it's a growing market, a declining market, it's, whether it's too cluttered, etc. I think the main thing about the market that's interesting for venture capital is whether you have the potential to become a category leader. Uh, so if there's too many, you know, too many startups already there, too many companies, well-funded, the chance of you, you know, being at number one, if there's already five, six players that are competing is, is, is slim. So uh, you want to make, you may want to change your proposition. You want to maybe aim another uh, vertical or, or, you, uh, or use it in a different way. Uh, so having said that, maybe it's a new category and there's like two, three players and you're one of them. Definitely, by all means, you should run fast and get the funding and try to conquer this hill. Um, the other case is where you kind of invent the category, so to speak. So you can say, all right, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm inventing something new. Uh, you know, given the the, the uh, example I gave earlier, so they kind of invented the sort of invented the the review, the in-depth uh, reviews market, so to speak. And then you know nobody's doing that, so you can actually take leadership on that. Um, and so I think um, the pot- the potential should be there. Obviously, not not all the potential is being. Uh, uh, materialized and uh, realized. Some some don't make it because of all sorts of reasons, but you definitely want to, to have some kind of uh, leadership uh, potential. And the third element is the product itself. You know, what is it in the product that can enable you to, to beat the market or to challenge the existing solutions, uh, whether it's the technology, the algorithms, the, maybe it's a, it's a completely new business model, uh, uh, so what is it behind it that makes it different and that kind of give you an edge? It can be an edge in terms of price. It can be an edge in terms of time. So you're like ahead of the market in whatever, 12 months. Uh, or, or, and, 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 but it, you should have an edge. If you're a me too to somebody who's doing the same, it, it's, it's less attractive. Another part of your book uh, is looking at startup culture. Um, you, you mentioned that, that Israel has a startup culture and, and it's been true. There's Israel has, has been phenomenal at, um, forming and encouraging, um, a, just a long string of very successful startups. Um, you mentioned six pillars um, I could list them really quickly. Sure. Uh, you had mentioned um, the availability of funding, uh, having multinationals, government support, academic support, and an entrepreneurial culture. I believe that's and all. talent. Did I get them you, all? You missed the f- and yeah. talent. Yes. <laughs> Very important one. So, in your estimation, where are some of the areas where you see that? It might be a country. It might be a state. I don't know. Um, yeah, so I, I think that, uh, when you look at these pillars of ecosystems and, uh, I, I think that it's, it's not enough to have the pillars, they should interact with themselves as well. Cause, uh, you may, so talent, by the way, just to give a quick clarification, when I talk about talent, it's not just about technological talent. It's also about entrepreneurial talent. Uh, Because everybody thinks, okay, do they have good engineers? It's not enough. You need to have good entrepreneurs. Uh, When talking about funding, it's mainly multi-stage funding. So it's not enough to have only seed stage because then the companies wouldn't have follow-on investments, etc. So you want to have some kind of a multi-stage funding ecosystem. Uh, 
Uh, regarding multinationals, you don't, again, it's not just the presence of multinationals, it's also the interactions with them. What do they need? You know, they can co-invest with you. They can help you to, t uh, they can tell you where they are going in two, three, four years and what are the technologies that they will be looking for, etc. cetera. Um, government support is important because you have uh, all sorts of uh, risk, which is associated with this business. And you want the government to somehow support, whether it's the investors, the multinationals to attract them through, you know, tax incentives or what have you. And uh, so the government definitely have a, an important role. And the academia is also shouldn't be isolated. So some of the academia have really good IPs, but they don't really, um, um, I would say, industry friendly enough in order to turn these IPs into companies and into startups. So again, the academia should work very closely with investors, for example, so they can uh, extract these IPs into startups and make companies out of them. Um, by the way, the largest exit came out of Israel was a $15 billion exit of Mobileye, which was an IP created in the Hebrew University. So uh, it definitely you can create some significant companies out of that. Um, and then the culture is also important. And the culture is, uh, you know, it's how you, how, how you treat risk, how you treat failure, uh, whether you have, again, this mindset of chutzpah we talked about. Uh, all these things are important because there are some countries where you have, for example, people are very talented, but if, you, if your first startup failed, you're doomed for life. Like if you look at, at the person as a failure, that's the wrong thing. You should look at the failure as an event. Yeah, the company didn't make it. It's not that the person is a failure now for, for good. So, and uh, by the way, statistics show that people who on their second uh, startup, actually the chances of success is, are much higher because they've already gone through some of the schools. <laughs> so, uh, was, no, you're not encouraging anybody to fail first no, on purpose. No, but I to, say that no. it shouldn't, uh, you shouldn't quit because of that. Yeah. Uh, and definitely yeah. the surrounding, whether it's the investors or the colleagues or the family, or they shouldn't kind of doomed you for that. It's, you know, you tried a lot of the reasons startup fail is not up to the startup. You know, what's happening in the market, what's happening with the competitors, what's happening with, with the trends. Uh, you don't have control over that. So uh, um, I think that the tr that treating failure in the right manner is very important. Um, and, and again, to have this idea that you can, you know, challenge the authority and challenge uh, uh, you know, um, you mentioned the, the culture of a startup, not just an ecosystem. Um, in Israel, it's, it's very common. We actually encourage that um, to challenge everybody. I mean, the CEO doesn't have all the answer. The board doesn't have all the answer. The, you know, if you're a good, you know, product guy or girl and you have a good idea or you think that where the, you know, the company is going is not the right one, by all means, you should step up and say something. And nobody will, you know, and, and you're encouraged to do that. Um, and, uh, you know, one of the companies we had at the time, uh, we recruited an uh, American CEO. And, um, and it, it was really interesting kind of um, process because in the first two weeks, he kind of he called me after two weeks. He said, listen, uh, we had an operation in Israel and, and in the U.S. And he said, listen, I'm not sure I, I can actually do this work. And I said, why? He said, you know, when I tell my American employees to do something, they go and, and do it. Uh, and when I tell my Israeli employees to do something, they start arguing with me and saying I'm wrong and I should do it differently. And, I, and I, I, he, he didn't know how to address it. And so I told him, you know, 
Um, let's do that. Try to embrace that. Try to listen to what they're saying. Once you make a decision, they will follow you. But before you make the decision, encourage this dynamics, encourage this creative talk and let the people talk. Let, the, let them argue between themselves. Let them challenge you. That's fine. And then it, 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 it transformed. He was really fell in love with that because after that he said, what do you mean I'm right? Tell me why I'm wrong. And he was keep asking them to challenge because he really liked that because it was really uh, a healthy process. So obviously you need to do it in the right way. But that's part of a good kind of, uh, you know, a good culture within a company. Um, you know, that not, you know, the management doesn't, don't, doesn't necessarily have all the answers and the managers don't uh, necessarily have all the good ideas. And uh, you should listen to the people. You should let them challenge you. This come up with, you know, probably the best people to come up with what the market needs are the sales guys or, or, or women who are in the sales team because they meet the market. And uh, they should tell you what the market is saying, and they would know better than, in some cases, the management or the board. So it's 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 good to have uh, this kind of open dynamics within a company. Well, it, it makes some intuitive sense if you've got, if you're if you're going to hire talent, whether it's in marketing or engineering or management, use it. <laughs> exactly, and if they're not good, you know, so yeah. Get a better, yeah, better well, people, yeah. But that's that's exactly it. Yeah. And and people within a startup, you know, they they feel it's theirs. It's not. It's it's very different than working for you know large corporation where yeah you feel you identify with a brand and with a company and all that. But it's not yours. A startup definitely. Right. If you if you're you know among the first whatever 40, 50 employees, it's really feeling that it's your own company. Obviously, you have equity in the company, but the the it comes from from caring for the company. It's not that they want to harm anybody. It's really they really wanted to succeed. And you should listen to them. They're not, they're not always right. Obviously, nobody's always right. But at least I think the the culture should be uh, one that you actually have the the stage given and the microphone to everybody, not just the the people who call the shots at the end of the day. Uh, so we've been talking a little bit for a while about uh, all aspects of venture capitalism, about startups, and about startup culture, success and failure. Um, is there any advice uh, from your book or, or that you have um, that we haven't asked about that, um, that uh, you think is, would be important to, for our, our listeners bunch of engineers <laughs> and entrepreneurs. Yeah, I think I think uh, there there is one chapter about um, uh, about completing the mission, and uh, and uh, this is actually the roots. I would say it's ca- coming from the IDF, the Israeli Defense Forces, and uh, one of the interesting things in the IDF is that when you imagine an army, you say, okay, everybody has to follow orders or whatever. That's an army. So yeah, you need to follow orders, but that's not the most important thing in the IDF. Um, what you are being trained for, and I was a commander of a, of a combat unit for uh, quite a few years, and what you're being trained for is actually not necessarily to follow the orders, but more importantly is to complete your mission. And in order to complete your mission, you can do anything. You should improvise, you should change the plan, you can do Whatever it takes, you're the commander in the field, you know what's going on, 
and you need to make sure that you complete the mission. We don't care how. And you, you are actually being trained for that. So, for example, when you go on a drill, like let's say a five-day day drill, uh, so you have a plan and a drill structure, ta 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 for five days. And then after like three hours into the drill, they say, okay, new inputs. Uh, you cannot do it uh, at night because of weather. You have to do it in the day. Uh, some of your ammunition is gone. Uh, you lost uh, a few soldiers were wounded and they need to be, uh, and they're out of your, the, uh, of your, of your uh, company or whatever, or your unit. And now, all right, deal with it. What do you do? And how do you uh, react to that? What do you, how do you still complete your mission? And I think this kind of mindset of mission completion is very powerful, especially when you bring it to startups, because then you, you have this, all right, I have to, you know, I, I got to fly half the world. I'll fly, you know, I need to work weekends. I'll work weekends. I will do anything in order to complete the mission. And it, it, it's within all the, the layers or the, the departments of, of the company. Uh, so I think that if you kind of adopt a mission completion doctrine, uh, it doesn't have to be a military thing. It just, again, it's a mindset. And when you say, okay, this is my mission, this is what I can, this is what I need to do. And the mission could be a mission for the next day, or it can be a mission for the next month or for the quarter or for the company. But when you have this mission in, in, and you know to define the missions um, to, the, to, to your colleagues, employees, management, uh, that's a very kind of powerful mindset that will, again, will enable you to come over the hurdles and the challenges that uh, the startups, uh, have, any startup has. I have one last question. Sure. Um, I read your bio. You're familiar with Microsoft, right? Yeah. Yeah, you used to work for them. Right. Um, the, fo- the founding myth, IBM was looking for some, some software. They went to, they, they had their supplier kind of, dissed them a little bit and they turned around to this young kid, Bill Gates. And they said, can you give us this? <laughs> and he said, sure, no problem. And then he had to turn around and go get it. Right. Now I'm, I lived in New York for a long time. To me, that's what I think of as a classic chutzpah story. Can you get away with that these days? Um, to some extent, I don't think, uh, I think that today uh, you can, if you can, if you can do it quick, then you can. <laughs> so if you say, okay, I have a great team. If you know that you have a great team and they ask for something, let's say your product is 80% there or your solution is not quite, and they ask for a tweak, but you can say, you know what, give me a week and I'll bring you that you can definitely get away with that. Or, you know, you can say, yeah, I have it. And then just stroll away a week and say, yeah, I could, uh, let's get a meeting in 10 days time. And then you build it in these 10 days. So you can, you can do it in a, I think in short intervals. Uh, I wouldn't recommend a startup to, 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 I don't know if it's to cheat or lie or deceive or whatever, and say something that is completely not true because uh, you, 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 integrity is very important. So uh, you can, you know, um, the corners doesn't have to be always that sharp, but I think that uh, um, you can get away with it to a certain extent and you should be very 
careful to judge when is it that you can actually pull it off or when to say, you know what, I can, but I will need some more time. And uh, I would also appreciate if you can, you can actually say, you know, I appreciate actually your brief or your, uh, to be some kind of a, a design partner uh, to help us build this solution. Because I have like the infrastructure, but I, the S application, I would really uh, appreciate your inputs for that so we can actually build it in the right way. So we can actually leverage it in some cases to your advantage. Uh, so I would say a quick answer, it's yes with a, with a, with a question mark in terms asterisk. of, uh, <laughs> exactly. Uh, be careful when you do it and don't, don't, don't push it too much. Yuri, thank you so much for your time. Good luck with the book. Thank you. It was a pleasure. That was Yuri Adoni, author of The Unstoppable Startup, which went on sale on September 8. The book details specific challenges found in each stage in the early life of a startup and offers advice on how to meet each of those challenges. It includes interviews with entrepreneurs such as the CEO of Waze and the CEO of CyberArk, among others. There's a link to the book on this podcast episode's webpage. You might recall in an episode a few weeks back, our guest was Jim Warwick of Beacon Technology Partners. Jim is the empresario behind our latest biennial survey of engineers around the world, which we call the Mind of the Engineer. The results from the survey tell us a lot about the electronics industry, about engineering as a profession, and about engineers themselves. Here's my favorite bit from that episode. We actually uh, did focus groups, which led up to our first questionnaire. Uh, it was one of the Boston sessions. We were asking a variety of engineers about what, uh, you know, what really uh, motivated them and, and so on. And I was trying to get these engineers to articulate what it felt like if they had been working on a very vexing problem for days or weeks, and then they got the answer. What's that feel like? And of course, you know, our engineers tend to be rather prosaic, so they were saying it felt great, it's wonderful. But one of the individuals happened to be, she uh, was a woman, she was um, from Russia. She actually had been trained as a physicist and was actually making the graduation over to power electronics. She got so excited trying to answer this question that she started um, shaking and, and just uttering things in Russian. And we said, no, 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 please, please, English, English. We want to understand. And she held up her hands like this. And she says, what I feel like? I feel like little God. <laughs> <laughs> the reason we're revisiting that earlier episode is because EE Times is now offering access to the full Mind of the Engineer survey report, complete with data and insights. The report is an invaluable source of information about engineers, the engineering profession, with plenty of gold nuggets to mine about the global high-tech industry. The web address is rather long, so I'm not going to repeat it here. But if you go to the webpage of this podcast episode at eetimes.com slash podcasts, we'll have a handy link waiting for you, along with a link to that earlier podcast titled, I Feel Like Little God. We really do have to get t-shirts made with that. And now the moment you don't have to wait for because it already happened. Just about every week, we like to celebrate the anniversaries of watershed events in technology history. And if we can't find a great event, 
we'll settle for a diverting curiosity, which is what we're doing this time around. Today, we're going to set our Wayback Machine to October 11th, 1887. That's the day that Dor Eugene Felt applied for a patent for an improvement on a machine he had first filed a patent for just a few months earlier. This thing was something I had never heard of before today, even though the device was supposedly used well into the 1990s. In the patent, Felt referred to it as an adding machine, but it quickly became known as a comptometer. Felt's comptometer is considered the first commercially successful, key-driven, mechanical calculator. That distinction includes several qualifications, and that's because it was hardly the first mechanical adding machine. You could argue that that was the abacus, uh, which goes back thousands of years, although they're now carefully referred to as calculating tools. The modern ancestor of Felt's comptometer, and imagine air quotes around the word modern, was the Pascaline, a mechanical adding machine that Blaise Pascal began building in the 1640s. Though there were some contemporary designs, Pascal's adding machine was the only one from the 17th century known to have worked properly. Of the 20 or so Pascalines that Pascal built, nine are still known to exist. Most are held by European museums, and IBM owns one. Gottfried Leibniz, the co-inventor of the calculus and the namesake of a rather delicious cookie, expanded upon Pascal's idea. He built two calculating machines, one in 1694, the other in 1706. Both were considered lost until 200 years later, the first of the two was rediscovered. It had broken and was sent out for repairs that apparently were never performed. 200 years later, in 1880, workmen clearing out a university attic found it and sent it back to Hanover, where Leibniz had lived for a while. That machine, called the Staffelwalze, or loosely translated into English as the Step Reckoner, is considered to be the first functional design to perform all four mathematical functions. By the 1850s, at least three European inventors had created key-driven adding machines. At that point, the devices were being referred to as arithmometers. In the United States, Thomas Hill heard about the European machines and decided to build one of his own, which he completed in 1857. It is considered an impractical design. By one account, when one presses a key, it sends the calculating wheel spinning, and it keeps spinning until it stops from inertia. Hill, by the way, would later serve as president of Harvard University. Other American inventors tried building arithmometers, all with limited success, until Dor Felt came along. Felt was working in a machine shop in Chicago and was inspired by the works of a planer, a machine used for shaping various materials. He decided to try to build one, but he couldn't afford metal parts, so he built his first adding machine model using elastic bands, meat skewers, string, staples, and a macaroni box. By the way, that macaroni box adder is in the collection of the Smithsonian. Hey, did somebody mention venture capital? Felt traded a future interest in his invention for a workbench where he could work. 
but later he borrowed 800 bucks from a cousin. He bought back the original interest and used the leftover money to buy parts. Later, he would be introduced to a machine shop owner named Robert Tarrant, who would eventually invest roughly $5,000 of his own money in Felt's endeavor. Felt used that money to pay back his cousin, perfect his machine, and start filing patents in 1887. That first patent was filed in July, and the next on October 11th. In November, the Felt and Tarrant Manufacturing Company was established. By the end of the year, Felt and Tarrant had built eight machines. Priced at $400 each, the first four went to the U.S. Treasury Department, and the remaining four went to local businessmen. Now, as a side note, Felt's comptometers were just complicated enough to require skilled operators. Felt and Tarrant did the training themselves. The average accountant at the time was capable of adding long columns of four-digit numbers. Felt's contometer could far exceed that, and when used by a skilled operator, could add much faster than people could in their heads. By one contemporary assessment, it could multiply eight to ten times faster than anyone using pencil and paper. This is purportedly the sound of someone operating one of those early models of the felt comptometer. Felt died in 1930 at the age of 68. His company, Felt and Tarrant Manufacturing, started making electric models in the 1930s. The company went public in 1947, and in 1957, it changed its name to the Comptometer Corporation. Four years after that, it merged with the Victor Adding Company. The last comptometers were made in the 1960s by a British company that had purchased manufacturing rights. The Victor Adding Company still exists, though it's now known as Victor Technologies. The company makes digital calculators, which are echoes of the old comptometers that are themselves nearly obsolete now. That's it for the weekly briefing for the week ending October 16th. Thank you for listening. The weekly briefing is available on iTunes, Android, Stitcher, and Spotify. But if you go to us via our website at www.eetimes.com podcasts, you'll find a transcript along with links to the stories we mentioned. This podcast is produced by Aspen Core Studio. It was engineered by Taylor Marvin and Greg McCray at Coop Studios. The segment producer was Katie Huss. I'm Brian Santo. See you next week.